Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, the podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors creating fiction books in all genres, ranging from sci-fi and mystery to graphic novels. I'm Lenny Picker, a writer for Publishers Weekly, and today I'm talking with David Eusen, author of more than 20 novels, and his crime novel, The Flood, is published by Severn House, the sponsor of today's podcast. We'll begin with a short excerpt from the book, which David recorded earlier. Rome. Friday, the 30th of October, 1942. The boy was four, a pretty child, slim, dark-haired, with bright and thoughtful eyes. On this cold, wet day, he stood by the bridge to the Castel Sant'Angelo, the city side, not far from home, staring at the stone angels and the vast brown shape across the river. They said it was once the tomb of an emperor, one of the greatest Rome had ever known. But he was a child, so it reminded him of nothing more than the little drum he had in their cramped one-room apartment in the ghetto, the only toy he owned. Down the Lunga Teveres, soldiers marched in dark uniforms, rifles to their shoulders, gleaming bayonets pointing at a sky so flat and lacking in colour, he might have drawn it with a soft pencil and a sheet of paper. He wondered if these serious, frightening men thought their blades could pierce the clouds themselves, slashing their leaden bellies, bringing the heavens down to earth. His father said the soldiers could do anything they wanted now. The boy didn't understand what that meant, but in the morning warplanes had flown over the city, their low and threatening engines bellowing like the voice of a great mechanical storm. From the windows of the great palace in the Piazza Venezia, The man they called Il Duce had spoken to a vast, adoring crowd. Best not go, his mother told him. We're not welcome there. David, without giving too much away of the plot, can you tell our listeners what the significance of the section, set in 1942 Rome, is to the novel? Sure. It's it's a prologue, a very short prologue, that tells us a bit about the key character, Pino Fratelli, who... Later on, where most of the story takes place in Florence, is a displaced character who can never quite overcome the tragic circumstances that occurred to him as a child in Rome in 1942. And talk a little bit about where the idea for this novel came from. The idea for this novel came from where I always get my ideas, which is just mooching around. Um, I was mooching around Florence, and I saw this mark up a wall that said, in 1966, the waters of the flood reached here. It was about 12 feet above ground. And I then discovered more about something I, I barely knew about, which was the terrible flood that hit Florence during that year. More than 30 people died. So it was an extraordinary event. It filled the wonderful city with mud, Uh, and chaos. And I was struck with a very simple idea, which is that Florence is the place that the Renaissance came from. It's a place we associate with beauty and knowledge and culture. But for about a day, it was hell. It was like the end of the world. And what would happen if a crime was committed in those circumstances? How would anybody ever solve it? And that, that's, that's the, the key to the story, is that Pino is affected by that crime and desperate to find out 20 years on, in 1986, what happened. And David, I believe I read somewhere that the story here actually originated as an audio book. Is that right? Well, it's a complicated story because I was writing this when, uh, in 2011, I was asked to write the novel adaptations of the TV series The Killing, set in Denmark. So I switched from Florence to Denmark, 
uh, and wrote three books set there and then came back to this. And because of a kind of hitch in the publishing schedules, it came out as an audio book first, which I tweaked for audio because um, I've done a lot of audio original work in the past. And then I tweaked it again back into book form for seven. So it's been um, it's been an interesting process. You know, I've done a lot of revisions on this, probably more than I would normally do for any of any normal book. And again, without spoiling the plot for our listeners, can you talk, I guess, in general terms about what kind of tweaks were necessary? I, I think um, there's a big difference between audio and book fiction in terms of point of view. I mean, with audio, you have to set out at the very beginning of every scene who's talking, whose point of view it is, where you are. You have to simplify. Uh, and I think you could add a a bit more richness back into the book uh, when I did it in book form. Um, because one of the things I really wanted to work out with this is that I set it in 1986 mostly quite deliberately. I wanted no technology. I wanted to write a book that had no computers, no internet, no mobile phones, none of the easy stuff that um, can get in the way of, of modern plotting. And I think I was able in the book to put a little bit of that complexity and richness back into it. How hard was it for you to get into the mindset of a sort of pre-cell phone society? I was actually just talking with my son last night about, you know, I guess I've had a cell phone for maybe 14, 15 years, and I'm 54 now. And it's, it's hard for me to really remember and visualize what it was like when I couldn't call someone and say, you know, I'm running 10 minutes late or things along those lines. So was that something that you found a challenge? Well, no, I'm older than you, Lenny, so it's actually quite easy. Um, back when this book took place in the 1980s, I was a journalist working for the London Times, doing foreign assignments and things like that, and um, using telex. And when I went out of the office, nobody knew where I was. You know, they couldn't track you or anything. You had to find a public telephone to call in your stories. So I was very, very familiar with the confusion that that added to everything. But also, it makes you free so that when Pino goes out on his rounds, um, the carabinieri don't know where he is. And he's quite a sneaky guy, so he uses that all of the time um you, you you had a kind of release back then that you never have now because everybody knows where you are they just run up the gps and find out that actually you're in the bar when you're supposed to be interviewing somebody could you talk a little bit about the character of julia yeah, there are two key characters in this. There's Pino, who's kind of mid-40s. He's off sick because he's really not very well, and he's bored, and he's obsessed with paintings, with what happened in the past. And he gets a lodger, who is Julia Wellbeloved, who is an English woman who's just gone through a very messy divorce and has completely lost herself and has gone to Florence to try to study for an art degree, and the two of them, by accident, encounter something that they're both interested in from different directions. Some of the damages a very famous painting in Florence, and Pino thinks this is associated with the crime, the murder of someone 20 years before, whereas Julia just finds it interesting because she's trying to write about why, you know, why would people go out and damage great works of art? What's, what's the, the mental process between that? And the two of them are kind of complementary. It's not, you know, it's almost like Holmes and Watson. One of them is very practical and pragmatic, whereas uh, that's Julia, whereas, whereas Pino is completely off the wall and looking at outrageous theories and trying to think outside the box. So I, I've tried to create a kind of classic pairing there of people who are not alike. 
And how did you go about researching what the Florence uh, police were like at the time? Um, I didn't do too much of that, to be honest, because I think if you get bogged down in police procedure, um, you can become a victim of your own research. And, you know, and who knows what the Florence police was like back in 1986. I mean, I have corrupt politicians, you know, I mean, this is a made up Florence. Um, so in terms of, of accuracy, of, of reality in this book, Places are very important to me. So the Carabinieri station in this is the real Carabinieri station, which is a form of monastery. Only only Italy, of course, can put police stations in a form of monasteries. Um, and a lot of the buildings are the real buildings. And I went into places like the Vasari Corridor, which is this astonishing private passageway for the Medici that crossed the river across the Ponte Vecchio and is now full of sell portraits um so i put a lot of real places in there to kind of you know i want people to feel they are in florence but in terms of police procedure you know i mean a modern writer if i'm setting something um today we don't follow modern police procedure because it'd be very boring we'd just be people looking at cctv and mobile phone records um so i, I didn't really feel tied down by that from for 1986 at all and David, for readers who are familiar with your series with Nick Costa and Pieter Vos, how would you say that this book differs from them? I, I think it differs in that it's very much a partnership. Um, most of my books tend to be um, team, team books. You know, I'm a great fan of Ed McBain, the great 87 precinct novels, where you had that, it was almost that foretaste of what was going to happen on TV with NYPD blues and things. Um, whereas this book very much is that kind of Holmes and Watson partnership. It's two people who share affection and share annoyance aren't romantically involved but also have this this goal they want to solve this riddle they want to find out what happened 20 years before and, and whether this can actually solve um pino's big problem which is that he's very very ill so given the investment that you've placed into creating these characters and developing their relationship at this point is this a possible series kickoff it's a possible series kickoff. Um, I, I'll say no more than that. I mean, at the moment, I'm tied up writing a, a book in Amsterdam, which is the fourth in the Peter Voss series, and that's been picked up for Dutch TV as well. So I'm very heavily involved in that. But come next year, you know, I, I want to know what people think about it, what the publishers think about it, see how it goes. I think they're great characters, um, and I'd like to know what happens next. And I've kind of got an idea what happens next, because there's an extraordinary event in Florence every year called Calcio Storico, which is called means historic football. It's basically legalized fighting in one of the squares. It's, you know, it makes American football look like chess. You know, it is, it's a really funny, violent event. And I could just imagine the two of them getting involved in a scrape involving that. But um, we'll see, we'll see next year how that goes, I think. And from, the original conception of the plot, and you referred to what it was that sort of triggered the use of the flood, uh, until the finished product, what surprised you the most as the book took form? I think what surprised me the most was how I got to know Florence, because, you know, I went back there time and time again. It's a very difficult city. I'm very used to writing stories in Rome. 
and Venice, which are very open cities. Florence is very dark and secretive. You know, you go to Rome and all of the treasures, all of the architecture are out there for everyone to see. Um, but Florence hides everything behind these rusticated palaces that are more like fortresses, you know, the Pitti Palace, um, the Signoria. They, everything is hidden. So it's a very, very different dynamic to anything I'd ever encountered anywhere else in Italy. And in originally, you know, I wanted to um, I wanted to write a Costa story set in Florence, but I tried and tried and tried, and it couldn't work. It was only then I realized I had to invent some new characters to be with a very, a very, very different sort of city. So I hope it's a portrait of Florence, not the tourist Florence. This is Firenze. This is, the, you know, the Italian Florence. It's very little of it is set in the places that all of the hordes of tourists go to. A lot of it is set across the river in Oltrano or in, near the market in Sant'Ambrogio. Um, so it, 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 it's a different kind of portrait of the city to, to the one that I thought I was going to write in the beginning, actually. To be honest, when I first started on it, I really didn't like Florence. I found it a very cold and difficult place to work. But after a year or so working there, I, I got to love it. So your two series, and you know, maybe this one will be a series, maybe not. These are not set in your native country. What does setting your books outside of England allow you to do that you couldn't do if you were setting them in England or other parts of Great Britain? I think the main thing is it makes me work. You know, this this old adage about write about what you know, I think for me it's a terrible advice because if I wrote about what I knew, I'd just, you know, if I was writing about London, I'd just take it for granted. And, you know, do we need another book set in London? I'm, I'm not sure at all. But by going abroad, you know, I'm forced to build the world of these places myself, brick by brick from the ground up. You know, when I started on the Costa stories, I moved to Rome for a while. I enrolled at Language College um, for the the Amsterdam books and the Copenhagen books. I spent a lot of time there talking to local people and trying to see these worlds through the eyes of locals because I'm not writing books that are about foreigners who live over there. I'm writing books that try to see things through the eyes of the natives, which is why, you know, it's very complex you know, it's a great compliment with something like the Peter Voss books that immediately they were bought by a Dutch publisher and an option for Dutch TV, which tells me at least I got some of it right. But it, it makes me work harder and I hope it makes the world more vivid than if I was writing about something that I'd just lived with all my life. Um, I mean, the other side of that is that after a certain number of books, you do become familiar with it. So, after nine books set in Rome, you know, I wanted to, to move somewhere else because I was starting to take it to, for granted, to be honest. And you mentioned that your Amsterdam series is being adapted for Dutch television. And earlier you mentioned that uh, the flood was sort of put on the back burner for a while because you were adapting uh, someone else's work, the TV series, The Killing. What was it like for you to be working with other people's characters and the overall contours of someone else's plot? I understand that you you changed the ending, but again, without spoiling either your book or the TV series, what was the experience like for you to be sort of working off of someone else's playbook? 
It was absolutely fascinating because, you know, it's a very, very different medium. And and it was really, it was great to see how TV people saw the notion of story, the things they can get away with that as a novelist I can't get away with, and the things that I can get away with, vice versa, that they can't. And I was given an incredibly free reign with the killing books. You know, I didn't have to run them past a TV company to find out um, whether they liked it or not. It really was, you know, as if I was given an outline and told, you know, try to make it along those lines, but you don't have to follow them. Absolutely. The reason I changed the ending is very simple. Um, in a book, you need to know, you don't just need to know what happened. You need to know why. So why did this guy do this in the first place? What, were, what was his motives? What drove him to do it? TV is really not terribly obsessed with why. TV is a very kind of immediate medium that just wants to grab you by the scruff of the neck and then when the story is over, say, okay, you know, go and put the kettle on, make a cup of tea. Um, And I found that with a lot of the the TV stuff I've worked with, at the end, the conclusion isn't enough. You know, I needed to add something in to make it work in in book form. And I was fortunate, you know, with these projects that I was allowed to do that. Um, I suspect a lot of TV stuff isn't like that. You know, these were adaptations. They weren't novelizations. They weren't just a script turned into a book. They were very, very different projects. But I think I learned a lot from it in terms of what you can do with storytelling and also in terms of what you can take from TV and, and now apply to a book. And sort of along the lines of adapting a story from one type of storytelling to another, among the things that you've done have been to transform some of the best-known plays of William Shakespeare, Hamlin and Macbeth, into novels. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, they were were fascinating projects that um, were commissioned by Audible, which I I wrote with a friend of mine, A.J. Hartley, who's a professor of Shakespeare in America. And we we essentially, you know, it came out of a, a conference we went to in New York a few years ago where we were talking to Audible and they were asking for ideas. And we just said, how about you reimagine Shakespeare as a novel? So we started off with Macbeth, which is narrated incredibly well by Alan Cumming. And then um, we did Hamlet last year, which was again narrated wonderfully by by Richard Armitage. And both of them were were, um, fire, were shortlisted for orders. So they've been fantastically successful. And again, you know, you see the difference between theatre and a novel, because when you look at those stories in terms of a novel, there are huge gaps that, as a writer, you've got to fill. So, for example, in Macbeth, the story of Macbeth never tells you in the play why he goes the way he does. You know, why does he turn from a hero uh, in the first instance to, you know, a couple of acts along being this, this murderous regicide? Uh, we had to find a reason why he did that. Um, and again, in Hamlet, you have this problem with the soliloquies where it would look extremely tedious if it was just soliloquy after soliloquy. So we had to find a way of dealing with soliloquies. And the way we came up with for that was that we gave the internal voice, which is the soliloquy, an actual character in itself. Um, So we invented the son of Yorick, who becomes the kind of quizzical call and a response mechanism that Hamlet uses to kind of hammer out his thoughts. So 
structurally and technically and just just you know in terms of the craft they were fascinating fascinating jobs to do i spent a little time just looking at your blog and i saw that you had a number of entries that talked about uh, the mechanics of writing and the way that you use certain apps that assist you with plotting and development how much difference did those tools make for you and to what extent do you think they'd be a help to an aspiring writer I actually think we don't talk enough in writing about not the mechanical side of things, but the practical, the pragmatic side of writing. You know, there's any number of books about story theory and high flow and ideas like that. But the truth is that, you know, if you don't actually sit down and write the book, it doesn't matter how much you understand that, you're never going to get there. So, you know, as a professional writer, this is my living. Over the years, I've always tried to refine the process to match what I actually want to do. Um, For The Killing, the first book of The Killing, that was a 20-hour TV series with three ABC storylines. And that was a monster to try to manage. And I used an app called Scrivener, which is very popular now, to do that. Um, Since then, I've, I've refined things even further. So I try to make everything incredibly simple. You know, sometimes you see these courses that are like a 10-day course on how to use a writing app. And you think, well, you must be mad. You know, it's just writing. Um, and I now use an app which is it's only available on the Mac. It's called Ulysses. Um, it's absolutely brilliant, I think, because it's essentially a typewriter for the 21st century. And it makes you focus on the words. Yes, you can do fancy stuff with structure and keywords and outlining and that. But the main thing is it makes you look at the words that the reader's going to see in the end. And that's the most important thing. So after 20 years of writing, I think I'm finally getting close to how I'm supposed to be doing it. I'm not sure I'm quite all the way there, but I'm, I'm definitely nearer. Well, thank you, David, and thank you for listening. The book again is The Flood from Severn House. And please join us again for another LitCast from PW.